Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale. And uh, yeah, so we're going to be continuing on right away uh, my part four of my cosmological argument series. Um, so essentially, I'm just going to be cutting cutting and pasting exactly what I had. Um, I recorded this, sh this part of the show 100% finished in terms of my warrant for premise two, which is about warranting that there is a principle of sufficient reason. Uh, namely, everything has. I'm appealing to that as an explanatory principle to overcome the Glendower problem that atheists and skeptics like to bring up as an, uh, one of the five objections they can bring against any traditional cosmological argument. And they're basically the Glendower problem is, yeah, you have this cosmic fact that the universe exists contingently, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, that doesn't require an explanation or need a cause or anything like that. And Obviously, since the universe is contingent, we're going to be establishing, answering that Glendower objection by positing a principle of sufficient reason, our, our explanatory principle that says, yes, everything that exists needs a sufficient reason or explanation for its existence. Uh, and that uh, explanation is going to be, as we'll see in premise three, is going to be, is God, or, or the God one hypothesis, as we're going to explanatory hypothesis there so that that's the plan of action yeah um i'm just gonna get straight into it i, I recorded um lots lots of this show two years ago back on the in the summer of the first season of skeptics and seekers when i was the christian co-host um so yeah i didn't really do any editing uh on this on this front or add-ons like i've done with some of the the other ones or older ones where there's i said things wrong or or got it a little bit messed up and stuff like that anyways yeah so so yeah i'm just gonna literally copy and paste uh what i've had a hundred percent so uh let's do that now so enjoy the show um so yeah, let's let's move on to the second premise um and this is where our our use of a general explanatory principle comes in to overcome the Glendower problem and, and partly the infinite regress problem as well. But remember, premise two is our principle of sufficient reason. And the way we've defined the principle of sufficient reason uh, is every quote-unquote existing thing, remember we define what that means, has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. And this is, uh, again, this premise is relatively uncontroversial. Most rational people just know it's obvious and they it's self-evident. They know it's true and that sort of thing. Matt Dillahunty, the famous atheist, he doesn't deny this. He says, of course, this is true. But it, this is slightly uh, more controversial than, uh, or more complex in, than the first premise in terms of how we can warrant this premise. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on this um, and, and how we warrant this principle of sufficient reason. Okay, so we've seen if this premise is true or warranted, um, i.e. is sound, then this effectively neutralizes the Glendower problem because it provides a print general explanatory principle whereby we would expect existing things like the universe to have explanations or to demand or call for explanations remember glendower calling to the ghosts um but this but there aren't actually any ghosts that come um well in this case our principle of sufficient reason is what what allows us to not be like glendower 
not only does the universe call for an explanation, it actually has an explanation. Um, so that's that's what this principle of sufficient reason is is attempting to do. Um, however, before we get into the evaluating the soundness, is it true that this principle of sufficient reason uh, that there is a principle of sufficient reason? We first need to make a quick definitional note because notice how we've stated the principle of sufficient reason. There are different versions depending on which. Uh, person you're looking at uh, different versions of the pr principle of sufficient reason that one can use in a Leibnizian cosmological argument. And ours is stated, remember, everything, quote-unquote thing, that's the operative word, uh, that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the internal necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. So that's that's our particular definition. And there are different definitions that come into play here. So in the first place, there are different versions of the principle of sufficient reason, some stronger than others. And ours is a, very much a weak or modest version of the principle of sufficient reason compared to others. So for example, uh, Leibniz himself had a very strong, unsustainable, and I would even say possibly falsified version of the principle of sufficient reason, whereby he said every fact, both necessary, so a fact is a true, a proposition that is true. Uh, that's how we're defining a fact. Every fact or true proposition has an explanation of its existence. So that includes necessary truths and contingent truths. And subsequent to Leibniz, a lot of atheists and Christians, Peter Van Inwagen has created an effective argument, I think. He's a Christian philosopher that refutes or falsifies this strong version, or at least makes the, the very strong version that Leibniz gives problematic. And this was the version that Dr. William Lane Craig rejected, for example, when he heard it. This is because of the strength of, of Leibniz's principle, oh, it's unsustainable. Um, and there are objections to that. I'll see if I can, I'll provide a, try to provide a source from Peter Van Inwagen, or I'll mention his argument against that. But Effectively, it makes every everything necessary. We have some sort of modal fatalism at, at play if this is the principle. So I'm pretty sure this principle is falsified. We can't use the principle of sufficient reason defined in the way that Leibniz did. However, uh, there are other modern philosophers. Alexander Proust maintains a strong version of the principle of sufficient reason, but he modifies it by slightly weakening it. And he says... Well, instead of saying every fact or every true proposition has an explanation of its existence, he says merely that every contingent fact or every contingent true proposition has an explanation of its existence. Um, again, there, there are issues on that, but I, I think Alexander Proust effective, argues effectively and proves his case using the his version of the principle of sufficient reason. Again, uh, you can see this in the sources that I provide um, um, that I'm providing you, so you can read how he proves this himself and his different versions. Uh, so he provides one PSR that every contingent truth or contingent fact has an explanation of its existence, um, and this avoids uh, and circumvents some of the problems that Peter Van Einwegen and other philosophers have raised against Leibniz's very strong, radically strong version of it that includes necessary and contingent truths. However, our, our principle is actually even weaker um, than Alexander Proust's definition. 
I use that not because, oh, it, um, I don't think Alexander Proust's stronger version is true. I, I do think that's true. And our version, as a weaker version, is perfectly compatible and consistent with Proust's stronger version of it. I, I, I think he's, he's right. The principle of sufficient reason he gives is correct as well. Um, but it's not it's a, it leads to unnecessary disputes and, and things that are not necessary to make a successful Leibnizian cosmological argument. So I'm just trying to be, I'm just being pragmatic and saying, sure, I can prove that uh, the strong Proust principle of sufficient reason is true, and Alexander Proust has done that himself, or he's already done the legwork on that front, but I don't have to do that. So why pick a fight with a skeptic if I don't need to? I'm just merely going to argue that everything, every substance, forget about propositions, you know, I don't want to get into realism or anti-realism debates or, or numbers or propositions. Are they necessarily existent things that exist uh, or not? Our version of the principle of sufficient reason says, I, I don't have to get into that debate. Who cares? Whatever it is, my principle, wh whichever is the case on that front, my principle will apply and is consistent with a realist or an anti-realist position. If, if numbers and propositions turned out to be things that exist, beautiful. If you take an anti-realist position, no, they're not things, they're imaginary. Like William Lane Craig is an anti-realist, whereas I'm a divine conceptualist. I am a realist, uh, my own opinion. My principle is so modest, it doesn't take a position. It doesn't matter what uh, stance on that is true, it still applies. Either numbers and propositions are things and therefore they, they require an explanation, or if they're not things, then maybe they require an explanation, maybe they don't, I don't care. I'm just focused on things. Things or substances require an explanation of their existence, and that's all we need to make the argument work. Um, now also note that with our version of the principle of, our definition of the principle of sufficient reason, there are even weaker versions um, than what we have here, because we, our version says that there's an explanation either in the necessity of its own nature or in the an external cause, in the case of contingent beings or entities. So basically our argument makes a distinction between two different types of entities. There are necessary beings. Uh, so God uh, is traditionally said to be a necessary being, and that's what this argument is going to be trying to prove. Platonists, uh, who are realists or strong realists, I, I disagree with them, but they th they also think abstract objects like numbers or propositions are real things that exist necessarily, and pretty much everyone exists. Even anti-realists would admit if numbers and propositions are in fact things that exist, then they would exist necessarily. And then contingent things are things that could not have existed. It's, they don't exist in all logically possible worlds, even if they exist in some possible worlds. So human beings, it, it's possible I couldn't have been born, I might not have been born. Uh, the planet Earth might not have existed. That's a contingent being. Um, so, so these are the two types of things that our argument is trying to go for. And there's a weakened version of the principle of sufficient reason that we could use if there's some controversy about necessary beings because we don't really know a lot about how do explanations for necessary truths or necessary things like number, assuming a realist position, a necessary thing like a number or uh, propos true propositions or something like that, facts. How, how do explanations for that work? And we don't, 
have a, a genuinely clear understanding of how that would work. But I, I actually don't think that is an issue, though. I, I so, so, yeah, if that is an issue for the skeptic that you're dealing with, you could give a watered-down premise, say, okay, fine, fine, forget about necessary, things existing out of the necessity of their own nature. At the very least, every contingent thing, every contingent substance has an explanation of its existence, i.e. through an external cause. Uh, and that would be relatively uh, uncontroversial, or, or at the very least less controversial, for a skeptic accepting your PSR. Um, but again, I'm going to stick with the more stronger version, because I don't, I don't have a problem with necessity. In, in the first place, we don't really have a full explanatory understanding of how explanations of contingent things exist. We don't have a set of necessary and sufficient conditions to explain how contingent explanations work for contingent things. Um, we, we know some things about it, but um, not a heck of a lot. So I, I advance what's called a position called particularism as opposed to methodism. You know, so traditional classical theists like Rene Descartes or John Locke, they like Methodism. You have to first have a set of necessary, sufficient conditions, and then you use those conditions to identify, oh, well, this is a cat, this is a dog, because it you check off the list of criteria or conditions for being a dog or being a cat or whatever. I don't think reality works that way. I'm, I advance particularism. So I think we can properly, basically know what a cat is, what a dog is in certain clear cases. And then we use those clear cases to develop criteria after the fact, certain helpful criteria that can help us adjudicate uh, certain gray zones. Is, is this a dog or a cat or, you know, it's a hybrid? Uh, what, what? So it's the other way around. And this is a, a version called particularism. And I think that makes sense of the world and that would avoid this this issue of the skeptics yeah, the, the issue applies to contingent things. We, we obviously know what lo love is and stuff like that, even if we don't have a set of necessary sufficient conditions for that. And secondly, there's no problem in necessity. It's, it's just, look, necessity explains itself through its own, the necessity of its own nature. So things that are necessary are necessary because of axiom S4 logic. Axiom S4 logic is, necess is a necessary truth because it is necessary uh, out of a necessity of its own nature, and so on and so forth. It's it's a, a regress. There's this potentially infinite regress or circular reasoning. You know, explain it, circularly, circular, explain it, circularly explanatory, or is it a re an explanatory regress? Is that a problem? No, because there are different types of regresses. It's not the case that oh, it's an infinite regress or circular reasoning. Therefore, it's it's bad. No, not necessarily. There are different types. There are vicious, viciously circular arguments, or there are vicious infinite regresses. And, and we're going to be trying to refute vicious infinite regresses um, when we get to the infinite regress problem uh, later on. But there are also helpful or proper um, infinite regresses or circular explanatory models or reasoning. And these aren't problemat necessarily problematic at all. There is this distinguishing between them. So I actually don't have a problem. And, and that's why I'm including the necessity, keeping in that, that fact that there are necessary things and there are contingent things. Um, okay, so a second objection here that some skeptics, actually it was a Christian, and uh, this was raised to Dr. William Lane Craig, and they said, look, 
You're, uh, and also it's in the video with Matt Dillahunty. Now, just, just before I get into that, though, I'm going to include, so with the particularism versus skepticism or methodism, I'm going to provide a source from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy on the problem of criteria. So you can read that, uh, find that in the sources, and get sort of a sense of what what that is about. What am I talking about here to overcome that objection about using the the explanatory model of something being necessary out of out of the necess something existing of the necessity of its own nature. Um, but there's also a second objection here, and they they say, look, you, William Lane Craig, the version of our argument provides a artificial bifurcation of things. It it loads things into necessary beings and contingent beings, but that's artificially narrow because actually there, there aren't just two types of things, there are at least four types of things according to some skeptics. So they'll say, number one, there are things that are internally necess necessary or necessary independent beings. So that's the first horn of our thing, right? Things exist necessarily out of the necessity of their own nature. And um, that's what we're going to be arguing God is, or our first cause, or our ultimate explanation is a necess internally necessary or necessary independent being. But there's also a second type of necessary being that this argument just totally overlooks. Necessary dependent beings. So these are beings that are necessary, but they don't exist through the, by the necessity of their own nature. They're actually external. They're caused externally by something. So, um, for example, I believe in necessary moral truths. Moral values and duties are necessary. Uh, true propositions or facts. Some Platonist philosophers or realist philosophers will say that numbers uh, and and sets and abstract objects exist necessarily. They are things that exist necessarily. But traditionally, Christians don't like that. They don't want an infinite sea of a bunch of necessary beings, necessary independent beings. So they'll say, okay, well, sure, necessary. Uh, there are necessary things like sets, numbers, propositions, moral truths and values. But they are necessary dependent beings because their explanation is in an external cause, the second horn. They are caused by the necessary independent being, God. Again, that gets into the realist-anti-realist debate. Um, you know, I'm a divine conceptualist, so I don't believe that there are necessarily... I believe that numbers and more necessary moral truths and stuff are necessary dependent beings in the sense that they are mental objects. I don't believe there are any abstract objects. Abstract objects aren't things that exist. Like, there isn't the number one floating inside God's head. Uh, the number one is a thought in the mind of God. Uh, so it's a mental object. But there are also people like William Lane Craig who are anti-realists and say, no, these things just don't exist. There are no necessary dependent beings. Whereas realists will say, no, there are these necessary beings, but they're dependent on another necessary being, a necessary independent being, i.e. the mind of God or, or God in some way, caused by God out of necessity. Um, so there's those two differences. Then there's also the normal contingent uh, beings that are contingently caused in an external cause. That's the universe, that's the planets, me, dogs, uh, chairs, that sort of thing. But another skeptic said, well, there's also a fourth one. There are contingent independent beings. Um, so, yeah, William Lane Craig responds to this, and I'm going to provide this in the sources. This is one of his Q&As for the week, and I think William Lane Craig responds quite correctly to this. So he deals with, okay, let's 
whether there are necessary dependent beings or not doesn't matter. That still qualifies under the second horn, right? Because that is something that is explained via an external cause, via a necessary independent being. And necessary dependent beings are caused by necessary independent beings, i.e. God. Um, so that doesn't matter. Um, external uh, depend, contingent dependent beings, again, that's what we've been talking about. That qualifies in an external cause, a necessary independent being God. Now the final category, contingent independent beings, there's no such thing. This is logically absurd and impossible. This is basically, this is a fancy way of saying it's a self-cause. There are contingent, contingently self-caused things, and that's impo logically impossible. You cannot pick yourself up by your own cosmic bootstraps. That You cannot cause yourself to come into existence if you're contingent. Um, and it, you know, as a contingent object, so there, that just that category doesn't exist. There are only three types of things, and they are perfectly consistent with our statement of the the bifurcation, the bifurcated principle of sufficient reason. There are either necessary, there, everything that exists has an explanation of existence, either in the necessity of its own nature, necessary independent beings, God or in an external cause necessary dependent beings like abstract potentially like abstract objects or propositions numbers uh, and contingent external or contingent dependent beings like planets the universe uh, Dale Glover and that sort of thing so yeah the, the premise defeats this objection it, it Stephen T the way Stephen T Davis has stated it and William and Craig has used it 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 covers all the bases that there there isn't any obfuscation here, or there isn't some, uh, they haven't missed out on anything. That This premise is able to cover all of the various types of things or, or beings that exist. Um, so, yeah, um, that's the final objection on in terms of clarifying about our premise. So, yeah, let's let's get straight into it. Um, is this, pre is there this, principle of sufficient reason. How, how do we know that we're warranted in saying that our version of the PSR is in fact true? And to that effect, we're going to break it up again into various positive and negative evidences, assign normative probability or subjective normative probability values to each of those factors, plug it into Bayes to get a cumulative case. And that's going to tell us, is there in, in general a PSR that applies to existing things in general? And that's in general. Um, now note, there's also the second aspect. After, we, after we've established that there is a PSR that applies generally to existing things, um, some skeptics may try to say, okay, well, sure, there's a PSR that exists for existing things, but not for the particular existing thing you're arguing for, not for the existence of the universe. Oh, that's an exception. We, we are justified in having an, an, uh, an exception or an exemption to the general explanatory principle. So yeah, that, that's what we're gonna have to look at. We have to demonstrate and warrant two aspects here for this premise to be successful. One, that there is a principle of sufficient reason that applies to existing things in general. And secondly, that that general explanatory principle of sufficient reason applies in the particular case of what we're trying to explain, i.e. the existence of the universe in particular. 
Uh, so that's what you can look forward to. Uh, so that's what we'll be doing. Let's get into it. Okay, so the f very first uh, line of evidence is one that I've used in the past with people like Andrew and uh, Matt Taylor and David Johnson uh, is my good old favorite friend, the properly basic belief. Um, and additionally, it's, it's also self-evident uh, that the principle of sufficient reason is true in the way that I've defined it. It does generally apply to existing things. Things, everything that I can think of has expl has an explanation. It's just obvious and, and known in a properly basic way that the principle of sufficient reason is generally true uh, in the 100% degree. There's not zero doubt in my mind. I'm absolutely certain that the PSR, as I've defined it, exists in general. And further, it's also a double whammy because with aspect two, I'm also 99%, 99 to 99.99% uh, warranted via a properly basic belief and it's self-evidence that the PSR as I've defined it applies in the particular case of the universe. So this, this is the first positive reason to believe that there is a PSR and further as a double whammy, it also applies, this principle also applies in the case of the universe in particular. Um, now, there are a couple of objections that skeptics or PSI denying skeptics, PSR denying skeptics will, of course, want to raise. And that's the fact, well, I don't have this properly basic belief or I don't see the PSR as being self-evident. So in the first place, I just have to say, well, that's your fault and your problem. That's not my problem. I'm warranted in believing it's true, whether you have a properly basic belief in that regard or not. It, I don't really care what you have or not. It, that's your your fault and your issue. Um, so you can reply that way. You're warranted just because there are counterfeit claims. Uh, sorry, so just because somebody else claim, doesn't claim to have it uh, doesn't mean that you're f not warranted in having a properly basic belief. It's a subjective evidence. Only you know if you truly have a warranted true belief or not through this mechanism. Now, one thing I, I just want to say, sometimes skeptics are too hasty. They're just desperate to try and reject the premise. So they'll say, well, I, no, I, I don't have it. But there are reasons. So David Hume, for example, was one such skeptic. He denied that the PSR was self-evident. And he was responding to uh, Leibniz's version, so the strong version in particular, not ours. But he's saying, no, I don't have a properly basic belief or it's not self-evident to me. Um, and what's, what's more, he actually affirmed other propositions as being self-evident to him that contradict our version of the PSR and leap and stronger versions of the PSR. So, you know, this philosophical confusion and disagreement, how do we explain that or address that? And the first way is actually, look, it's the job of philosophy to make sure we clarify our terms. So in the first place, it, it's not clear that People like David Hume, for example, actually deny the PSR as we understand it, um, or the, the PSR properly. David Hume, for example, had this weird mistaken notion that constant correlation was the same as causation. It's not. He screwed up. That's totally wrong. We have to make sure that the skeptic, the PSR denier, actually understands what they're talking about and what they're denying. And they have to clarify their terms and say, well, why do you reject it? Are, are there any hidden reasons? Or do you have a misunderstanding of the terminology in the first place? So that that's one thing that you could do to try and help a PSR denier, you know, and understand. A second objection is the fact that there are so many counterfeit claims to properly basic beliefs or self-evident 
propositions and truths, right? Uh, David Hume himself said, no, I think this is this proposition is self-evident and that even contradicts your PSR. But again, because the because properly basic beliefs and or self-evidence, th this is um, a subjective line of evidence, you and you alone are warranted in keeping that regardless of the counterfeit claims. I don't care how many false uh, claims there are to properly basic beliefs. So that's totally irrelevant to me. I don't believe you, skeptic. I believe me because I'm through interest, basic introspection. I'm aware of what I know to be true. Uh, and I'm, I don't have that power to know what you know to be true in a properly basic way or, or self-evident, in a self-evident way. So these are, are two ways you can respond there. And just be aware that the reason why uh, these skeptics, they, they may be telling the truth. They're not necessarily lying or necessarily having a misunderstanding. It could be that they sincerely don't have a properly basic belief or don't see the PSR as being self-evident to them in the way most rational people do. Um, and that that could be explained on a Christian perspective because uh, of sin, you know, the noetic or cognitive, uh, th their cognitive faculties are now defunct in various ways. Uh, the atheist is defunct in various ways because of the noetic because of the noetic uh, effects of the fall. Um, and every human being, even Christians, are still affected by that. Our spirits were affected, our emotions, our, our cognitive abilities in various ways and to differing degrees. So yeah, you know, people aren't all in the same state and that's perfectly understandable from a Christian theistic perspective. So it, it could be that these skeptics don't actually have a uh, properly based belief or see the PSR uh, as being self-evident. Um, however, in addition to what we're saying, I think that we can do something to maybe perhaps spur the skeptic uh, to see if they truly don't have a properly basic belief or truly don't see it as self-evident. And what I'm going to do is appeal to four different cases. And these, um, a couple of these actually qualify as separate arguments uh, for the truth of the, of the PSR in general that I'm arguing for. But uh, the way I'm going to use them is just as pragmatic arguments that are, can kind of spur the, the PSR-denying skeptic to see, you know what, yeah, I do see the PSR as being, uh, is being true in a properly basic way, or, or it is self-evident. Once I go through these e examples, um, yeah, you're right, I, I do see that there is this principle. What I'm going to do, I'm going to use specific examples that are designed to be uh, problematic for the atheist or the the PSR denying typical skeptic. So, you know, they're, they're not going to want to deny that the, the PSR is true with these examples. So my first pragmatic example here is based based on an argument. Uh, look, the, the abandonment of methodological naturalism in science. We all know how much atheists and skeptics love clinging on to their me methodological naturalism. No supernatural miracles. We can't have that. That's a ridiculous explanation. How many times have we heard that nonsense? But yeah, uh, okay, uh, Mr. Skeptic, if you get if you deny the general truth of a PSR or a principle of sufficient reason, then guess what? You have no business uh, holding to methodological naturalism. No, it, we're able, perfectly able to settle for easy supernatural explanations. God of the gaps, let's do it. I've got no reason not to. The, the heck with science. That's a waste of time and hard work. I'm just going to go, God did it. Thor did this. Uh, 
Zeus did this. Without the PSR, there there isn't any way to try to maintain a, a devotion in science to methodological naturalism, which we all know is the correct way to do science. Uh, even Christian theists accept this. They reject metaphysical naturalism. That's complete nonsense. But they do adopt methodological naturalism in doing science. It, and it's accepted. Part of the justification for accepting that assumes that there has to be a principle of sufficient reason along the lines of what I've defined it above. Because, you know, think of it this way. If, if you want to come back to this and say, no, we don't need a PSR. We're just saying scientists are using methodological naturalism because we're arguing just this is what natural phenomena are typically explanations you know they're the typical explanations that's all we're saying but as i said yeah w without the psr we you have serious problems we have no way to measure the quote-unquote typicality of natural versus supernatural events you have no reason to prefer one type of explanation over another uh, so as Alexander R. Proust puts it, he says it this way, quote-unquote, as long as there is any chance that something could happen for no cause at all or no explanation, right? No principle of sufficient reason, there are no sufficient explanations or causes. Uh, things can just happen inexplicably. Then, he, then Proust continues, given the infinity of possible events, we would expect chance, supernatural, and even altogether inexplicable events to be often realized contrary to observation this doesn't happen so here's the first pragmatic example this should s trigger within you psr denying skeptics to go hey no i accept methodological naturalism i'm rational in doing that and if you do then that means you accept the principle of sufficient reason otherwise you have no epistemic right to maintain methodological naturalism in science. Here's another pragmatic argument that should spur or trigger a, a properly basic belief or the fact that the PSR is in fact self-evident in general, uh, self-evidently true in general. We would have to abandon our senses, our sense data, and again, all of science out the window. Uh, this is an argument from Dr. Robert C. Coons, for example. And, he was basically saying, look, it, it, without the PSR, for, forget about Rene Descartes' demon deceiving us or, or hallucinations or illusions. Um, without the PSR, it's entirely possible that our perceptual states are just produced inexplicably for no reason at all. It's not that they're mal explained by a malfunction. No, they just come up without any bearing or any reason to come up. And yeah, that this is problematic. D doesn't this trigger? No, there has to be a principle of sufficient reason. If, if I'm seeing something that's not there, uh, so, you know, obviously in science, if, if I'm seeing something, it's because there's light photons, blah, 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 and we know the scientific explanation for that. Or even if there's nothing there and it's a hallucination, well, that still fits the principle of sufficient reason. There's a sufficient reason for the malfunction of my uh, cognitive, my, uh, cognitive and sight faculties so that I'm seeing something that's not there. But these all assume the principle of sufficient reason. Their perceptual states don't just come uh, come about uncaused or inexplicably. Um, and if, if we deny the PSR, you would have to say, well, we would expect to see that happening all the time. We couldn't trust anything we see or touch or sense in any way. A third pragmatic argument is, look, without the PSR, you would have to abandon all of ethics and morality. Um, geez, I, I know how much you skeptics love to um, s 
pretend you're morally superior to Christians and, and say, look at this in the Bible, I'm out morally outraged, this is terrible, and slavery is bad, and blah, blah, blah. Um, well, guess what, Mr. Skeptic? If you, if you deny the PSR, shut your mouth. You're not allowed to dare judge Christians because you have no base. Not only are, can I deny that you just have no logical grounding or foundation uh, to ground necessary moral truths, um, but without the PSR, you just have, you've got nothing. It's just, you know, our moral, there's a moral truth uh, with the example of, um, you know, it's, it's moral to switch a cart, uh, a trolley, to save five people, but kill, you know, switch it onto a track where you kill one. But by the same token, it's not moral to kill one person for the sake of giving their organs and saving five people to five people that need it. Uh, before they die. Uh, well, what's the difference? There's a moral truth or moral fact there that applies and differentiates the two. Without any, without the PSR, you have no reason to, to adjudicate that. Our, our moral uh, senses or moral facts could inexplicably change on a dime. It's wrong to torture today, but five minutes from now, oh, it's cool. It's now a moral duty. Let's get out there and start killing people and torturing people. If you don't want to abandon ethics or morality, then you have to accept that there is a PSR in general that applies to these things. Um, and then my final example, I, I know that you skeptics are going to love this, an abandonment of evolution. Oh no, because uh, you know that's your beloved masterpiece to try and escape intelligent design or creation arguments or uh, teleological arguments for, for the existence of God, right? Without your beloved evolution, as Richard Dawkins says, you lose your ability to, your ability to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So, you know, let's say I came along and said uh, human be the human species and their, their various biological features. What explains that? And I just said, oh, I don't know. One day uh, an ape walked into a swamp and inexplicably out walked a human being, a fully developed human being. Obviously, you skeptics would laugh at me as being totally ignorant. But without the PSR, actually, I, you deserve to be the one laughed at because you don't have the right to dare insist that there is an explanation. There's nothing wrong with a human being just inexplicable, a ape going into the swamp and out walks a human being for no reason at all. The reason for the flaw in logic is, look, let's use a comparative parallel example whereby, let's say uh, your professor, he can reason inductively that because he knows that all the colleagues whose pets he is familiar with or he who knows, they have dogs, and since he knows many of his colleagues' pets, therefore, every single one of his colleagues has a dog. This is obviously logically fallacious because all you are justified in inferring in this case is that every colleague who has a pet has a dog, not that every colleague has a dog. But evolution, it takes, without the PSR, ev the evolutionary argument, the argument that, no, uh, all... Um, Organism, biological organisms and their features have a neo-Darwinian naturalistic mechanisms that are responsible for it. And we all derive common descent, we all derive from uh, one common ancestor and stuff like that. Without the PSR, you don't have the right to make that logical inference because you are making the same exact same type of argument um, that I did with the professor, professor's colleagues and his dogs. Uh, basically, you're reasoning or inferring based on a small, biased sample. I mean, just 
the things that we know about and have studied is just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of all the biological organisms and their features and the various biological features that have existed throughout the 4.6 billion years that the planet uh, Earth has been around and the three, I think 3.8 billion years um, since the first life forms uh, came about according to modern contemporary science. So you're, you're committing the same logical fallacy based on a biased sample and then inferring something that is not logically justified based on that unless you're able to use a PSR, principle of sufficient reason, to bridge that gap and say, well, in the case of evolutionary or scientific explanations, we are able to make that leap and, and say that, no, it's, it's not just, we, can't, we don't just infer just the biological organisms for which we know have explanations are explained through evolu naturalistic evolutionary means, but no, every organism is explained through naturalistic evolutionary means. And you need a principle of sufficient reason to do that. So, so yeah, these are the four pragmatic uh, arguments that I wanted to provide you. And, and, you know, when it comes to a properly basic belief or the self-evident nature of the principle of sufficient reason, as I said, these are hard to get across if, you, if you're talking to a skeptic who just doesn't have these. Um, but I wanted to provide these pragmatic examples that could serve as triggers. And maybe you're sitting there as a skeptic and you go, you know what? Yeah, I, I believe in evolution. So I, I obviously believe there's a PSR there. I I believe in methodological naturalism. I, I believe in ethics. I think it's wrong to torture people. Then yeah, you've got to admit there's a principle of sufficient reason along the lines that I've defined. Yeah, uh, that, that should trigger a properly basic belief um, and show you that it is indeed self-evident, uh, hopefully. Okay, let's move on to the second argument uh, that I want to address. And this I call the God remnant argument. Um, so, and sorry, um, with the properly basic belief in self-evident, as I said, I'm 100% convinced that there's a PSR in general. And it's a double whammy, so I'm 99% uh, warranted in saying that that general principle also applies to the universe. So that's aspect one and two that I get uh, through this line of evidence. Uh, for me personally, you will have your own normative probability values. That's fine. Assign the degree of warrant that you think you have based on that line of evidence and plug it in and then we'll move on and we'll find out what the overall total is for each person. Uh, but moving on to the second argument, so this is what I call the God remnant argument. So this argument basically says, look, given the fact that God exists, then obviously the PSR is true because part God is defined minimally as a maximally great being. He has divine aseity. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything was created and sustained by God. So obviously it logically follows if God exists, then yep, the principle of sufficient reason along the lines that you've defined it, Dale, is in fact true. Great, uh, bada boom, bada bing, we proved it, right? No, not quite. So, so obviously skeptics are probably screaming, the PSR denying skeptics are saying, well, this is viciously circular reasoning, Dale. You know, you're, you're assuming, the only reason you would accept the truth of the premise, the PSR premise, is because you already uh, accept the conclusion that God exists and you're using the acceptance of that conclusion to prove that the premise is true. That is a circular argument. Uh, it's logically fallacious. 
Um, well, not quite. There's some nuance here. Uh, so opening up your listening ears and, and pay attention. This is important. So basically, in terms of how we warrant God existing, we can warrant this from different avenues, an ontological argument, a teleological argument, or we know that God exists in a properly basic way through our sensus divinitatis or God's sense. And then perhaps, uh, and then we derive from that, that the PSR is true. Great. Uh, that's that's perfectly reasonable. But here's what this argument is about. This argument is not so much for theists, but for skeptics or atheists. Because let's say you are an atheist now. You've lost your knowledge that God exists. But there may be a remnant that still pertains, whereby you still know the PSR is true. You've, you've forgotten how you derived that knowledge, but Nonetheless, you still know that the principle of sufficient reason is true. This avoids the circular reasoning fallacy for you guys because you're you're not you don't accept the conclusion in the first place, but you still have this knowledge uh, that was gained based on a forgotten bit of knowledge that you now no longer accept. And there's an example that illustrates how this is logically valid. So let's pretend um, I go to a hotel room and it's the number three fourteen. And I want to rem memorize that I was in room 314 for whatever reason. And to help me do that, I say, okay, well, I will remember, I derive from my knowledge through my senses. I, I see the room number, it's 314. And I derive from that, that, okay, my, I, and memorize that my room number is the same as the first three digits of pi. Now, let's say over five years go by. And I totally forgotten what my room number was through my sense data of seeing it and uh, knowing that it was the number 314. I, I've lost that knowledge. But I still remember that, oh, but my room number was the same, the same as the, or identical to the first three digits of pi. Then I can derive back and go, well, the first three digits of pi are 314. Therefore, I remember, I know that my room was number 314. This isn't really an additional source of warrant. This is just allowing you to regain the lost knowledge that you had originally um, based on a remnant of knowledge that you have from your original knowledge base that has now been forgotten. Um, so, that, so that's how this argument works. I'm not going to personally assign anything to this because I am a Christian theist and I want to avoid any false charges of circular reasoning on my part. But if you're a skeptic or an atheist, I, I think about this. If you're someone that formerly believed in God, um, and maybe you just know that the properly that uh, the PSR or principle of sufficient reason is true, but it's not a properly basic belief, or it's not self-evident to you. You you have this knowledge, but you have a sense that it was it's derived based on something, or it's it's yeah it, it's derived from your knowledge of God, uh, your former knowledge of God. But you just can't deny that this aspect is true. You're allowed to use that and apply this argument in that case. Okay, so let's move on to the third argument uh, that proves the general truth of the principle of sufficient reason, or PSR. And this has been termed, there, there are a couple, you know, there are different types, but the main category, this is known as the epistemological argument. It makes epistemology imper impossible. And with respect specifically to probability, so this is Anthony Sixx. Uh, Val or Andrew, I know you're knowledgeable about this, and I'm talking statistical probability or frequency probability, the type that you guys like. So um, pay attention to this. Um, now, I have to be honest here and upfront. I didn't. I'm not sure I totally understand this argument 100. Um, percent 
Um, so maybe if, if one of you guys, Anthony66 or, or Andrew or Val, if you guys hear this, maybe if you don't mind leaving a comment and just sort of explaining it a bit. Um, I, I also provide some sources. Uh, Pruce, this is uh, presented by Pruce uh, in the part one video on YouTube. Uh, you'll see the bit about this probability type argument. But before you get into that, so there are different versions. So there is one that it makes inference to the best uh, the best explanation impossible. There is no such thing as a best explanation. How, how do you, you know, the way that works, you have explanatory power, scope, ad hocness, or simplicity, stuff like that, um, in order to help you infer. And that's relative to various comparisons. But now if, you ha if you're also comparing it to inexplicable events that just come uncaused out of nothing, how do you derive what the best explanation is? I mean, uh, coming coming out inexplicably without explanation, well, that's the simplest hypothesis, but it just totally lacks explanatory power, for example. So it, it just makes any kind of probability judgments in this regard impossible, uh, you know, inductive reasoning or inferring abductively what the best explanation is. But the, the argument that I want to get into is specifically about probability. Um, so... Here's, here's how it works. So in the first place, probability is impossible without the truth, the general truth of the principle of sufficient reason. And it become, it comes down to, well, let's, how does statistical or frequency probabilities work? Well, let's say we have a two-headed coin and you, you flip it a hundred times or even an infinitely number many of times. Well, what's the probability that you'll get heads? Um, out of all those times you flip it, and it's one half. That's generally the frequency that we would expect, or, or what's called the quote-unquote limiting frequency. We would get heads half the time out of all the flips, or 50% of the time. The number of outcomes divided by the total number of possible possible outcomes that could could occur. Now, base now with probability though, there's a there's an assumption that goes in, and that assumption requires a PSR to work, right? Because in the first place, we get the limiting frequency, and then we derive a probability from that, and that's usually done through applying what's called the Strong's law of large numbers. Um, and this states that look, the limiting fre frequency of large numbers, like flipping flipping a coin infinite number of times or a billion trillion times or something like that. Uh, so long as they're independent outcomes, that equals the actual probability of the outcome. And some philosophers or uh, of math will question that, but most rational people don't. They they make that linkage to the probability of the outcome is actually the same as the limiting frequency for large numbers of independent outcomes. Um, so that so that's good. Um, now here here's the problem. Here's why it doesn't work with with doing probabilities because the SLN SLLN or strong law of large numbers has an assumption that is based or derives from the PSR. It needs to assume that the outcome is quote unquote measurable relative to the underlying probability measure. Without the PSR, it's not measurable. Um, it's it's totally non-measurable, and and it would just be chaos. Uh, so. Here's what I, it would lead to, maybe you flip, maybe you flip the coin in the first 100 million times you flip it, uh, you get a heads 8 out of every 10 times. And then the next 100 million times you flip it, you get it at 4 out of every 10 times. And 
you know, the, the limiting frequencies will be randomly changing without any sufficient reason to link the limiting frequencies to an actual probability of occurrence. You know, how, how does it, how do we know it's going to stay one half each one of the times? Um, now here's the part where I, so I get a little confused here. So th this is the part I want the mathematicians in the audience to maybe sort of explain a bit. This is actually false. It's actually even worse than what I just said. Um, because the limiting frequencies are totally non-measurable. And without the PSR, it actually means that the limiting frequency is quote-unquote maximally non-measurable. Uh, so you can't even say anything about the likelihood. You can't even say that for the first five minutes, it was eight out of every 10 times was heads. And then for the, the next 20 minutes, it was two out of every 10 times. You, you can't even say that. It's just maximally non-measurable. You can't get a probability at all to say anything about the likelihood or improbability of hypotheses. And therefore, you can't use empirical frequency observations to prove anything. Yeah, that's that's sort of the argument there uh, in terms of probability and how it works. As I said, check, check it out in the sources. Um, I didn't include this aspect of my calculation, even though I know it's successful, just because I wasn't 100% sure of how we got to the fact that it's maximally non-measurable. I, I believe absolutely that is the case, mathematically speaking, and I, I'm sure Anthony Sixix and, and those guys will be able to explain it in the comments uh, if they listen to this. But... Um, yeah, uh, there, there it is. That's the argument from probability. You, without a PSR, the limiting frequencies, the one out of every two flips, is impossible to measure. Therefore, probability out the window. But obviously, probability works. So that proves there must be a principle of sufficient reason in general. Bada boom, bada bing. Okay, um, the next argument, our, our fourth argument here. This is one William Lane Craig likes to use, and I, I think it's really strong. I'm 99.99% uh, warranted in believing that a principle of sufficient reason exists in general uh, based on this argument. And it's basically the, the simple argument. Well, I observe the world every day, and I never see, never, not once, do I see widespread PSR violations. Why aren't unicorns or two-headed giraffes or rhinoceroses or ice cream cones or uh, $10 million checks made payable to Dale Glover just popping in and out of existence all the time, ex nihilo? Uh, without a principle of sufficient reason, there's just no reason why anything and everything wouldn't be popping in and out of existence all the time. But our observational experience proves actually no, that's not the case. Anything and everything does not pop in and out of existence all the time in our world. This proves that there must be a general principle of sufficient reason that explains that explains why there's this constraint on reality uh, of things popping in and out of existence. Um, so that's a simple argument. That's one used by William Craig in all of his debates where he uses the Leibnizian cosmological argument. And it's a very, very strong one. 99.99% proven for me uh, just based on that alone. And I, I think that... This argument will convince most rational people that are, are being fair and open-minded to truth. Okay, the last positive argument for the uh, truth of a principle of sufficient reason in general is one that I think is one based on modality. The, I call this the nature of modality argument, and it's, it's actually a reductio ad absurdum argument. So it says, look, if we deny that there's a principle of sufficient reason, it leads to a logical contradiction, and it's logically, therefore it reduces down to logical absurdity. 
Therefore, there has to be a principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason is a necessary truth. Uh, just in terms of definitions, just to give people a, a quick crash course in modal logic and, and some of these terminologies, that uh, some of the terminology that we'll be using, when we say that something is logically necessary in, in modal terminology, so a basic definition is it, it cannot be prevented from existing. It, it's impossible for that thing not to exist. And in modal logic terminology, we would say that that, that means that something exists in every single logically possible world. Um, for something to be contingent, that means that it is possible to prevent that thing from coming into existence or from being, or if it's a proposition, from that proposition uh, being true. Um, so it can exist in some possible worlds, but it doesn't exist in all possible worlds. That means you're contingent and you're merely, you're coherent or logically possible. Um, and then finally, there's logically impossible things, things like a married bachelor or a square circle, where it's impossible for them to exist. So they don't exist in any logically possible world. And what is a logically possible world? Basically, it's, it's a maximum or a maximal set of propositions uh, that are either true or false relative to our actual world. Um, so there's a logically possible world in which Dale is wearing a white shirt uh, right now as I'm recording this. In the actual world, that's false. I'm not wearing a white shirt right now. Um, so, but it's still logically possible. So there are some possible worlds or there's a set of maximal set of propositions where it's true that Dale is wearing a white shirt at this moment. So sometimes I think skeptics get confused here. Just understand a logically possible world is it, it's a quote-unquote abstract entity. It, it's not a concrete thing. We're not saying that it, the multiverse is real or, or you know, an, an, an infinite multiverse is real or something like that. No, we're in the same way that you sets of numbers exist, that's what a logically possible world is. It's simply a set of the a maximal set all the propositions that are true or false within that set relative to our actual world. And that doesn't take a position on, you know, realism or anti-realism. If you think sets are things, you take a realist position, great. If you don't, uh, doesn't matter. I'm, I'm happy if you're an anti-realist and you don't think abstract sets are actual things, that's fine. In whatever sense they exist, this argument will work. Remember, our, our argument or version of the PSR only applies to everything that exists. So every logically possible world that is actualized, if you take an anti-realist position, uh, some possible worlds are not actualized, right? They, they don't actually exist or have a concrete form. Whereas some scientists, if you take an infinite multiverse view, then every logically possible world actually exists and it comes into that instancing or belonging relation uh, in terms of various properties or propositions contained within that set, the propositions in that set. Uh, so hopefully that that sort of makes a bit more sense in terms of definitions, what we're, what we're talking about here. Another quick uh, clarification point to understand this argument. So we, now we understand the difference between something being logically necessary, something being logically possible or contingent, um, and something being logically impossible. Um, so the, the question arises, what, what is it that makes the difference between these things? Why, why is it the fact, what, what grounds the, more, the modal facts that a square circle is impossible because it's necessarily contradictory, um, whereas 
a horse is contingent. God, God hypothetically is necessary, or one plus one equals two is a necessary proposition, but a golden mountain is contingent. What is it that grounds the differences in these moral facts? And there are at least five different main uh, theories as to what makes the difference there. And we're, we're not going to get into, into that, but uh, if you want to see the five different um, non-revisionist theories of what grounds modal facts, uh, you know, there are things like the, um, what's it called, the uh, strict logical, uh, narrowly logical uh, account of modality, there's the Louisian uh, or Lewisian count of modality, it's also known as the extreme modal realism view. Um, there's the Platonist view, so someone like Elvin Plantinga takes that view. Um, then there's the Aristotelian essentialist view, which is uh, the view that I personally take, or I think William Lane Craig takes this view as well. Um, however, the, the problem with, there are problems with the, these various views, I think. Um, I, with the Aristotelian essentialist view, I think that's real, that's correct, that's the correct or best one we have. Um, but that works, it assumes theism, and obviously an atheist or skeptic, someone that denies the PSR is not likely to go for that. So the, what we're going to be assuming in this argument is the Aristotelian causal account of modality. Um, and that just basically grounds modal facts in the fact that uh, in causation, you know, something that we are relatively familiar with in our, um, in our lives, right? So some, something can cause another thing, it, it's within its causal powers to bring about that certain thing. That's what it means to cause, or to cause a chain of cause and effects to bring about that ultimate contingent thing, such as the universe, or that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll let you guys, um, I'll, I'll provide the source source to Alexander Priest's website where he goes over um, goes over the five different accounts and what they mean, how mo modality works. Um, that's section 2.2.63 uh, in on his website or in the Blackwell Companion. So yeah, that's our, our quick uh, definitional thing. So let, let's, how does this argument work? Let's, let's get straight into that. And uh, the first thing we need to assume, the first thing we need to understand is this argument works by assuming a self-evident axiom, and it's highly plausible, basically undeniable. So modal logic assumes what's called the Brouwer axiom. Uh, so that's Brouwer uh, spelled B-R-O-U-W-E-R. And the Brouwer axiom basically states that if a, a truth P holds, or thing holds, then it is a necessary truth that P is possible. Now, Alexander Proust, in making this argument, actually utilizes a weaker version. He's like, I don't even need you to give me the Brouwer axiom. I can just uh, use a weaker version of the axiom, even though the Brouwer axiom is obviously true. It's self-evident to anyone with a functioning brain and who's interested in truth. But he just says, look, all I need you is the, is the axiom. If, P, if something holds contingently, so if something exists contingently in some possible worlds, but not in all possible worlds, then it is possible, obviously, for for that thing to exist, um, for that thing to be both possible and false. This this is just obviously true. It's undeniably true. Yeah, if something's logically possible, it, it's possible that it exists because it exists in some possible worlds, but not all of them. 
And since it doesn't exist in all of them, then it's possible for this thing to be false, because there are some possible worlds where this thing doesn't exist, or this proposition isn't true. Okay, so here's how the reductio ad absurdum argument works. Let us suppose, for the sake of reductio, that a contingent state of affairs, you know, the, for example, the existence of the universe, the coming into existence of the universe, uh, has no causal explanation. So this is the assumption of denying the PSR. This, uh, we're saying the state of affairs whereby the universe came to exist has no causal explanation, as the PSR denying skeptic would like to maintain. So we can call that state of affairs E star, for example. And this would be, obviously, E star would be a contingent state of affairs, because there are possible, logically possible worlds where the state of the universe coming into existence, quote-unquote E, that we designate E, uh, comes into existence with the cause. That's logically possible as well. Basically, by using the weaker version of the Brouwer axiom, it is possible that, quote-unquote, E star, aka the universe coming into existence without an explanation, does not obtain, so it's false, but it's still possible. Remember, our, our weakened version of the Brouwer principle if something's logically contingent, then it's possible for that to be logically possible, but false. Uh, that's just an obvious self-evident truth. So let us suppose that a possible world is is there, that where this E star state uh, uh, obtains, you know, the PSR is denied and the universe comes into existence without explanation. This would mean, um, because it's logically possible that there are possible worlds where the universe does come into existence with a cause and there's a logically possible world where the universe comes into existence without a cause hypothetically for the sake of argument then that would mean that actually there is a cause c uh in this logically possible world where e star obtains where the universe comes into existence without a cause actually there's a cause uh, in this world that initiates a chain of exercises of causal powers uh, capable of leading to E star or capable of leading to the universe coming into existence without an explanation or a cause. That's obviously logically contradictory. If you're scratching your head saying what the heck is Dale saying, it's because it's logically absurd. It leads to a contradiction because in making this argument, in getting the skeptic in supposing the skeptic's right in denying the PSR and, and that it's possible that uh, the universe comes into existence without a cause, then we thereby prove that actually there is a cause that both explains, that both gives a causal explanation for the existence of the universe, right? If, if one of the propositions or facts in that logically possible world, that maximal set of propositions is different, that difference is a uh, cause that changes the outcome and gives the event of the universe coming into existence a causal explanation. But, on the other hand, we're also saying that, well, if that fact is different in a different logically possible world, then that would cause or explain or lead to the fact that the, the universe comes into uh, existence without an explanation. Um, or the PS or that the PSR is false. The PSR does not exist. Um, so the two it leads to a logical contradiction, and this is how the absurdity of the argument works. Um, so 
yeah, hopefully, hopefully I've explained that uh, in a clear enough way. If I haven't, check out the sources. Um, I'll, I'll give the specifics as to where you can find this argument and get an understanding of the different accounts of logical modality and, uh, you know, read it for yourself and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I think this, this argument is great. Not only does it prove the truth of the PSR, it proves that log it's logically necessary that there has that a PSR in general is true. Yeah, uh, this is pretty powerful evidence against PSR denying skeptics. Okay, so let's uh, switch gears, um, and you know I can picture the PSR denying skeptic uh, pulling out their hair, saying, "Well, what you've given all these positive pro PSR uh, arguments, arguments that prove that the PSR or principle of sufficient reason, as you've defined, is true in general." But what about all the contra-PSR, the negative evidences against the general truth of the principle of sufficient reason? Um, you've totally bypassed those. Um, well, guess what, Mr. PSR-denying skeptic? Uh, we're going to get into that right now. So the first contra-PSR or, or PSR-denying argument is really a weak and pathetic one, but it's called the, I call it the modal imagination argument. And this is basically where a PSR-denying skeptic will just sort of, on an ad hoc basis, uh, you know, kind of smacks of desperation to my mind, but they'll just say, well, look, I can imagine a world without the PSR, therefore it's logically possible, right? You you like to use properly basic beliefs and you, you say that we have these modal evaluating faculties that produce properly basic beliefs to give us modal knowledge as to what's logically possible or what's... Uh, logically necessary or what's impossible, blah, blah, blah. Fine, I, I as the PSR-denying skeptic, I'm going to use that. I can imagine, say, a brick just popping into existence without an explanation or without a cause. Uh, therefore, it's logically possible that this could obtain. Therefore, it's logically possible that the PSR is false. Um, so how would we respond to this? So Number one, the, the first thing to say um, is, well, even if this is the case, that doesn't mean that the principle of sufficient reason is, in general, is false in the actual world, especially in light of all the positive evidences that I gave based on the actual world that we live in that proves that there is a principle of sufficient reason. Even if it is logically possible, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the case that in the actual world, the PSR is false. Um, so you can respond in that way. Secondly, don't don't forget the argument, the pro PSR argument we just covered. We proved even if it if it is logically possible, then it leads to logically contradictory results, and proves that the PSR is actually necessary. It is true in all logically possible worlds, and it is therefore logically impossible for the PSR denying skeptic to be telling the truth. That or to they're, they're either lying or they're deluded um, when they say they can imagine a brick just coming out coming into being uncaused uh, or unexplained, totally inexplicably, just popping in and out of existence or something like that. They're I'm right. They're wrong. Um, now, what what may account for this? We it might not be the case that these PSR denying skeptics uh, are actually lying, you know, or just trying to come up with some desperate way to avoid the tr obvious truth, uh, they could be woefully deluding themselves. And and how would we explain that then? So how, how could they be deluded about such a self-evident truth? And 
I think what happens a lot of times is skeptics uh, and people that use um, imagination will sometimes confuse imaginability with conceivability. Conceivability is what's important for some for us to say that something is logically possible or not. Not necessarily imaginability, because sometimes people might say they can imagine things that aren't actually conceivable, like imagine, you know, temporal paradoxes, for example, or or sometimes we can conceive of something that we can't imagine. That happens to me all the time. Um, you know, there are various complex quantum phenomena, for example. We we can conceive of it and, and explain it mathematically, um, but, you know, as um, Richard Feynman says, no one, it's impossible for our minds to imagine or uh, a scenario where that, that explains it in, in our, based on our experience of the macro world and that sort of thing. You, you can conceive of, its tr of the phenomena taking place through mathematical explanation, which interestingly, my uh, Professor Paul was saying that the this sort of disproves the Democritus um, type view of reality of atoms and all of that, uh, and so it shows that Plato is right. Actually, ultimate reality is Platonic. It's, it's explained by these mathematical concepts more at a fundamental level rather than concrete physical objects. Um, that's just an aside, but um, yeah, that that's my point. So I, I would just deny, no, actually, you're not uh, imagining it. It's logically impossible for you to imagine it. And we've objectively proven that via reductio ad absurdum argument above, the, the nature of modality argument that we gave uh, just prior to this one. And um, in terms of your imaginability, I don't think, I don't believe you. I think that you're not clear in your terms. You're not being clear to distinguish imaginability from conceivability. Um, sure, I can imagine a brick coming into being without a brick maker or without clay needing to be dried in the sun or something, and it just, from our point of view, quote-unquote, pops into existence. But that doesn't mean I'm imagining it coming into existence without a cause or without a an explanation. No, it still hasn't. I, maybe I'm imagining a supernatural, an invisible supernatural being popping that brick through his causal powers. Uh, into existence. That's what we're imagining, and you're mistaking that that cause for no cause at all. So you just haven't thought too clearly about this as a PSR-denying skeptic, and you haven't taken the efforts to distinguish between imaginability and conceivability. And this is what I find is most most of the time occurring with skeptics who say they can um, just imagine this as sort of like a a counterexample or something like that. They, they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't really given it serious thought. It's more just an emotional reaction of wanting to deny the obvious truth. Um, that may sound harsh and too dismissive, but I actually think that I have the right uh, to do so in this case. Um, not only because I have the, the right to based on experience, my experience with skeptics who don't know too much about modality or, or they try to quickly get rid of the argue, the principle of sufficient reason by saying, oh, well, this is imaginable. I can imagine this. I can imagine that. But also, it's, it's logically proven via our last argument. Um, we know for a fact, uh, logically, that these people are either lying or are deluded when they say they can imagine something coming into existence inexplicably. Complete rubbish. 
Um, so this argument is an utter failure. Um, we're we're going to move on to something a little bit more substantive. This is what I call, this is what's called the modal fatalism argument. And believe it or not, uh, this was developed by a PSR-denying skeptic who's a Christian. What? Not a, for once, not an atheist. Dr. Peter Van Inwagen uh, developed this modal fatalism argument. And um, there are really two versions of the modal fatalism argument. So there's the official original one developed by Peter Van Inwagen. And then there's a second probabilistic version of the Van Inwagen argument here. And remember, this is the reason William Lane Craig rejected the Leibnizian cosmological argument. Um, depending on how you define the principle of sufficient reason, if you define it in the way Leibniz did, every fact, every true proposition, including necessary and contingent, has an explanation for its existence. Not to mention also the fact that it's a tr the truth value or false value of those necessary propositions themselves, this leads to modal fatalism. Everything that happens, happened logically necessarily. Um, that's what this argument tries to, to imply. And there's uh, a long list of premises here. Um, I'm not gonna go over everything, but I'm gonna include in the blog, I'm gonna include the actual deductive argument because it's a logically valid argument that he provides. And it's a reductio ad absurdum type argument against the truth of the principle of sufficient reason. However, here, the very first premise is um, what I'm going to highlight here. And this, this premise is, says, no necessary proposition or thing explains a contingent proposition or thing. This is really the key downfall of the argument. This, this prep, this argument uh, that he provides predicated upon this first premise, it's logically valid, doesn't commit any fallacies or that sort of thing, but this premise is false. I'm sorry, it, it's wrong. And it's amazing how many brilliant people fall for this kind of thing. They think this is a true premise. It, it's not just Peter Van Inwake. And I, I, I read uh, The Existence of God by Richard Swinburne. He believes this premise is true as well. Uh, in fact, it's the reason why he doesn't believe God is a metaphysically or logically necessary being. He thinks it's impossible for that uh, to be the case. He thinks God is merely factually necessary, in the same way the laws of nature are factually necessary. So it, ultimately, Richard Swinburne believes quite uniquely and controversially in a contingent God, or at the very least, a, a necessary dependent God of some sort, dependent on something else. Um, so th this is that's kind of a weird view, but th this premise is accepted by people that are brilliant, and even Christian philosophers. Peter Van Inwagen developed this, and Richard Swinburne, and um, there are some others as well. So, yeah, what what's the problem here? What why should we reject this premise as being uh, false? And basically, it comes down to the fact that. They believe uh, that, look, how do we define the principle? What does it mean to have a quote-unquote sufficient reason or sufficient explanation? And really that, that will be the definition. Our, our principle of sufficient reason entails that everything has an explanation. But there's a qualifier that uh, I add in my argument that I haven't mentioned up until this point. Uh, I haven't mentioned it because I wanted to make it at this point. It's not just an explanation, though. It's a quote-unquote sufficient explanation because there are different types of explanations that 
Uh, Richard Swinburne, in his book, for example, he said he makes a contrast between scientific and personal explanations. Uh, furthermore, he makes differences that's relevant to this point. He makes there are complete explanations. Uh, there are ultimate explanations, uh, which he believes God qualifies for, and then there are absolute explanations, which he denies, because absolute explanations are there's a metaphysically necessary explanation, and that explains all other contingent things. Um, but what is what is the prob what is the problem with that? And it's because they believe that in order for something to be a quote unquote sufficient explanation or sufficient reason, it has to logically entail. The consequent or logically entail the explanandum, uh, the thing being explained. Uh, and that's the root of this premise. And that is just blatantly false. It's not true um, that, um, and it's understandable why they get this wrong, because Leibniz himself defined the sufficient reason or sufficient explanation to mean the same as logical entailment. Big mistake. That makes everything metaphysically necessary. Modal fatalism would be true. But actually, I'm just looking for a sufficient expl sufficient explanation, not an absolute explanation, not an entailing explanation, just something that explains the explanandum uh, and is sufficient for that purpose. Um, so let, let's uh, get give a couple of examples of how we can prove that Actually, we know for a fact that there are many sufficient explanations that don't logically entail the expl the consequent explanandum or the effect. So here are a couple of examples. So the, f the first example is obvious. There are statistical explanations. Uh, things like saying, well, smoking explains or cause is sufficient. Uh, someone smoking for 30 years is sufficient to explain pe a person getting lung cancer. This is a statistical explanation. It, it by definition, does not in logically entail if, you know, you could smoke for 30 years, but that doesn't entail that you will get lung cancer. It's, it's possible you could get off the hook and, and not suffer a day in your life uh, because of it in, in some way it, or something like that. So, so statistical explanations are sufficient even though they don't logically entail the explanandum. No scientist or mathematician in the world would deny that statistical statistical explanations are insufficient, uh, count as insufficient reasons or insufficient explanations simply because they don't logically entail the, the given phenomenon or the state of affairs in question. Uh, likewise, we also have in science non-statistical explanations. Uh, so for example, the planet, what explains the planet's elliptical orbits? Um, well, we would provide a it's sufficient to explain that through the sun's mass and its gravitational influence that's a sufficient scientific explanation and it doesn't but that doesn't logically entail that the planets will have the elliptical orbits right it's it's on the assumption that there isn't anything else that can overwhelm the sun's mass or the sun's gravitational influence um, and without a principle of sufficient reason, remember, things could be popping popping in and out of existence all the time. A more massive uh, object could just pop into existence in our solar system and thereby screw up the planet's elliptical orbits. Um, without a PSR, you have no way of denying that. So again, the, the point is, it's a sufficient it's a sufficient explanation to say what causes the planet's elliptical orbits? Oh, the sun's mass. That's a scientifically sufficient explanation. No one would deny that. Um, 
But again, it doesn't logic. The sun, taking the fact or the cause of the sun's mass is not, does not logically entail that the planet's orbits will be elliptical. And Alexander Proust goes into great detail and, and depth in showing how, why the explanation for the planetary's elliptical orbits can never be considered a, something that logically entails its effects. So these are just a couple of examples that prove that actually a sufficient explanation does not mean that the uh, the effect has to be logically entailed by the cause or by the explanation uh, in order for the principle of sufficient reason as we're defining it uh, to be true. Um, so yeah, that, that's really the Achilles heel of, of Peter Van Inwagen's argument. He makes this false assumption uh, that even Leibniz himself did where he thinks that in order for something to be a quote-unquote sufficient reason or sufficient explanation, it must logically entail the explanandum, and, and that's just absolutely false. Um, now, so, some skeptics might try to object and say that, well, the, the bet, we prefer explanations that logically entail the consequent. Those are better kinds of explanations. So, we, you know, your your definition of a sufficient explanation, you know, it, it's it's we expect better. We want better. We desire a better type of explanation that logically entails the consequent. And to that, I would just say, uh, well, that's your fault and your problem. Sure, certain explanation, there are different types of explanations, and some may be better than others. Uh, but for the sake of making a successful cosmological argument, it doesn't matter. Obviously, there are uh, incomplete explanations or, or different types of explanations that don't involve logical entailment, but they are obviously sufficient, as I proved. And all I need for my Leibnizian cosmological argument to be successful is that there is a sufficient reason or a sufficient explanation. Outside of that, if we can get a, a, an explanation that logically entails the explanandum, well, so much the better. Uh, but if we can't, it doesn't matter. The argument is still successful. Um, so that's Peter Van Inwagen's original version of the argument and its Achilles heel. Um, but there's actually a probabilistic version of the modal fatalism argument. And so in, instead of premise 11, the, instead of the first premise that I was responding to there that was controversial, they'll change it up and say, okay, well, the first premise is here. If something explains uh, a contingent thing, then probably that... Uh, explanation given the existence of the effect uh, or you know the the thing being explained is greater than a half so that's the new first premise and then all the, the remaining premises are exactly the same in the argument it's logically uh, deductive it, it it's valid and it works and that sort of thing so here's the problem it leads to a reductio ad absurdum because in this case by following this premise eventually you will get overall prob probabilities of greater than 100%, and that is logically absurd. It's logically impossible for you to get a probability of 110%. Um, you just sound like a fool when you say something like that. You don't know what you're talking about, or you're saying it to score a rhetorical point or something. But yeah, so again, the Achilles heel with this version of the argument is the first premise is false. It's clearly false. And I can deny the truth of this premise on a balance of probabilities, therefore the, the argument fails. So let's, uh, why is this the case? Why would this premise be false? Why would I say that? Well, because in the first place, st statistical relevance theories 
deny the truth of this premise. If, if you're a mathematician, Anthony Six Six, back me up. Statistical relevance theories say that this premise is false um, because it shows a, a mistaken conflation of explanation with mere prediction. Um, there's a famous case, uh, the, it's called the syphilis uh, paresis counterexample to this, that directly counteracts this example with scientific evidence, medical evidence uh, as a counterexample. Um, so it, this is a famous counterexample that basically says, look, one's paresis can be, quote unquote, sufficiently explained uh, through the latent untreated uh, syphilis, through a, a patient's latent untreated syphilis. So they had syphilis, it wasn't treated, uh, and it was allowed to progress, so that's that explains, or sufficiently explains, why you now have paresis. But the problem is, this is true, this is a sufficient explanation, even if the probability is, is low that this is the actual explanation in, in effect, because actually, Syphilis, untreated syphilis leads to paresis only in a minority of cases. It's less than a half. So yeah, it's perfectly plausible that an actual cause of something can be filtered through events with probabilities of less than 50%, un falsifying the premise. It doesn't have to be something that's more probable than not. Uh, things that are improbable occur all the time. Um, an another uh, counterexample are forensic explanations. These these prove that this premise is false. So what explains David Johnson's drowning? Uh, hopefully I get your attention here, David, but um, what explains David Johnson's drowning? Well, that can be quote-unquote sufficiently explained by Dale Glover getting angry and pushing him over a cliff into the water, whereby he was unable to swim to safety and he drowned. This sufficiently explains the explanandum of David's drowning, the, the thing that we're trying to explain, it, it's sufficient. But it's also sufficient even if it were the case that David Johnson, unbeknownst to me, uh, the murderer, is actually a professional cliff diver. Uh, professional cliff diver, and it's improbable that he would drown uh, as a result of falling off a cliff into the water. There is only, let's say there was only a 25% chance of David Johnson's dying um, as a result of being pushed into the water off the cliff. The fact is, though, even though there's a low probability, David still fell in the water and actually died. In actuality, my pushing him over the cliff, whether it's a complete explanation or not, it is a sufficient explanation to explain why David Johnson drowned. You know, obviously, a complete explanation would also take into effect certain scientific facts. Why, why is it that uh, mammals mammals expire or die when they have a lack of oxygen and, and all of that stuff. That doesn't matter. It's, there's the personal explanation that Richard Swinburne would say. There's the scientific explanation and or there's also the personal explanation and the personal explanation in this case is sufficient. David drowned because Dale pushed him over a cliff and he couldn't swim to safety. He didn't swim to safety in time. So yeah, they, this falsifies this and obviously if we're talking probabilities less than 50%, we avoid the reductio ad absurdum of getting a combined overall probabilities over a hundred percent and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, there's no lot, uh, there's no reduction to absurdity here, and the PSR maintains uh, its truth. Okay, so let's move on to the what I think is the most substantive skeptical or counter PSR argument, or at least at, at face value, it's the most substantive uh, contra PSR argument or. or 
argument against the truth of the uh, principle of sufficient reason being applicable to thing, existing things uh, in general. And that is the uh, quantum argument from quantum physics or quantum mechanics. Basically, uh, people, PSR-denying skeptics will appeal to the alleged indeterministic nature of quantum effects. Uh, you know, things like subatomic par particles merely pop into and out of existence all the time. Uh, and it's said they do so without explanation. Inexplicably, just they pop up. And um, so it's claimed, according to them, quantum physics and modern science has proven that the principle of sufficient reason is false. This argument, and note that this argument can also be sort of used as a double whammy. Let's pretend I, I can refute this argument, which, as we'll see, easily can be done. Um, okay, the skeptic may say, okay, well, great. Well, using quantum mechanics, maybe you've uh, falsified my nonsensical claim that quantum mechanics proves there isn't a principle of sufficient reason in general. Okay, I, I now admit that there is a PSR in general, but I modify the quantum physics and say, but uh, not at the quantum level, because maybe things in general at the macroscopic level, uh, the PSR applies to that. But at the quant in the quantum world, that represents a justified exemption or exception. Remember, aspect two of our, our argument is we have to apply the PSR in general to the universe in particular, the existence of the universe in particular. And the PSR-denying skeptic will say, but at the quantum world, the PSR is true for macro-level events, but at the qu in the quantum world, it's not true there. Um, and therefore, it's not applicable to the universe in particular because at one point in time, I think it's around the Planck time or something, 10 to the minus 43 seconds, something like that, the universe was so small, it was at the subatomic level. It was at the quantum physics would apply to the universe itself, and therefore the universe could have popped in uh, into existence uncaused or inexplicably. Uh, so this argument is really a double whammy. It can be used to try to deny the general applicability of a P or existence of a PSR, um, you know, the truth of the PSR in general, and or if it fails there, which it will, can be modified to say, well, in the particular case of the universe, uh, it represents an exemption or an exception uh, that's justified to the general applicability of the PSR itself, and thereby the universe being a part of the quantum world at one time uh, is exempt from this principle of sufficient reason. So, yeah, how, how do we respond uh, to this type of argument? Well, in the first place, it's easy. In regards to the aspect number one, we can just say, well, pointing to quantum mechanics, even if you're right about this, it doesn't matter because quantum mechanics is just an exception or an exemption to the rule. It's a justified exemption. That doesn't disprove that the PSR isn't true in general. Given the fact that we've proven through the positive evidences above, the existence of probability, macroscopic science, methodological naturalism, uh, ethics and moral, we, we've proven over and over again that uh, the principle of sufficient reason in general applies, at least beyond the quantum realm. So if you are correct about the quantum realm, who cares? Just a, That's just an exemption or an exception that doesn't prove the PSR doesn't exist in general. Uh, of course, at that point, the uh, PSR-denying skeptic will simply smile and say, okay, well, then you've shot yourself because now you can't establish aspect two because the universe was at the quantum realm. 
So here, how do we respond to both at once? So bo establishing uh, this argument is complete and utter rubbish because actually quantum physics do have explanations. The principle of sufficient reason applies at the level of quantum mechanics or quantum physics. They do have explanations. They're statistical in nature. Remember, we proved above or we proved before that statistical explanations are sufficient explanations. So even if you accept quantum indeterminacy, which I don't, I personally hold to a quantum deterministic model. And remember, it's the, with these counter PSR arguments, it's the PSR denying skeptic that bears the burden of proof. He is making a claim that the principle of sufficient reason is false, either in general or in aspect number two in the case of applying to the universe. And that quantum indeterminacy pr proves that it's false. Actually, you're wrong, skeptic, because Number one, you can't prove that quantum indeterminacy is true. There are deterministic quantum uh, models or interpretations of quantum physics that are empirically equivalent. Science cannot adjudicate between them. And I'll provide a source, William Lee Craig mentions this, and Dr. Sean Carroll, the atheist uh, ex world's expert and scientist, uh, physicist and cosmologist, confirms, yep, there are these empirically equivalent things, including David Bohm's deterministic model of quantum physics. So you can simply go to the skeptic, oh yeah, you, you think quantum indeterminacy proves that the PSR isn't true? Well, prove that quantum indeterminacy is true, and he'll just go, ah, 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 I, I can't do it, um, if he knows what he's talking about, of course. But even if quantum indeterminacy is true, one of the indeterministic models is true, so what? There's still a sufficient explanation. Maybe it's not a logically entailing explanation, like a deterministic model might be able to give, but it's a sufficient explanation through uh, mathematical probabilities and statistical outcomes and that sort of thing. So once again, utter, utter failure, the principle of sufficient reason does in fact apply to the realm of quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice, nice attempt, but uh, yeah, I, I think that this argument utterly fails just like all the rest of the negative uh, arguments that we've seen thus far. So here's our final counter PSR argument and this is an argument that I think I think you saw I, I just saw glimpses of it but uh, Val and the guest Andrew Loke uh, from the unbelievable show on the Kalam cosmological argument uh, was sort of getting into a discussion with Val about fr the nature of libertarian free will and how that relates to things having a cause and that sort of thing. And, uh, they're, they're sort of back and forth on that. Uh, kind of, Val kind of reminds me of these PSR-denying skeptics uh, who, who try to relate, try to advance what I call the contrastive explanation argument. So the PSR-denying skeptic will say, well, the, P, the principle of sufficient reason can't be true because it doesn't uh, provide contrastive explanations. You know, so... An example would be, why does an electron, in quantum physics, uh, why does an electron go up rather than down? The rather than is the contrastive part. Um, so in order for an explanation to be sufficient, um, they say, well, or, or sorry, here's another example with the libertarian free will. Why does Dale freely choose to eat an apple rather than an orange? in a given case. What's the explanation for that? And they say, in order to have a sufficient explanation, you have it has to be a contrastive explanation, a specific type of explanation. So it's not enough to explain why I ate an apple or why an electron went up. 
but you have to explain why it went up rather than down. What? Why didn't it go down? Or why didn't Dale eat an orange? Um, so, you know, they, they try to say you have to provide these ternary explanations as opposed to just the binary explanation. And, um, yeah, in, in the first place, I just say this, this isn't true. Remember, it's on the skeptic, the PSI denier, to prove his case here. And in the case of if someone adopts an anti-realist perspective, so the, you know propositions aren't quote unquote things, our weak or modest version of the principle of sufficient reason doesn't it doesn't matter about contrastive propositions. We, they don't require explanations. Numbers, propositions, they don't need explanations. They aren't things, right? That they aren't exist quote unquote existing things that the PSR would apply to. So I can escape this argument that way. Or if you are a realist, because I am a realist, a divine conceptualist, it's not at all clear, it, it's not true that a sufficient explanation has to be a, has to include a contrastive explanation. No, in the same way we don't have to provide logically entailing explanations, we don't have to provide contrastive explanations. We provide sufficient explanations for things that are non-contrastive all the time. Think of it this way. So what explains my choosing to eat an apple rather rather than an orange? Well, I can exp the same explanation would apply as to why I actually chose to eat an apple. Um, that would apply to why I would have chosen to eat an orange. Um, so we can say, oh, well, there are Dale's free will uh, through agent causation. That's the explanation. I'm a prime mover. Um, in a new set of causal chains. That's what libertarian free will posits, and it's perfectly accept acceptable to give a personal explanation that assumes libertarian free will and agent causation. That is rational, and the skeptic cannot prove that it's not rational. Um, and again, he bears the burden of proof for this argument to go through and therefore prove the PSR's faults. Um, but yeah, I, I can be, while being impressed by certain reasons, so I could choose to eat the apple by being impressed by reasons I like I, I like the color red. Um, I and by the same token, I I could have chosen to eat an orange because I'm in the I'm in a mood I'm in the mood for a I'm in a citrus mood the mood for citrus today. Um, so in the case of me eating an apple rather than an orange, the same explanatory priors are are present whether I choose to eat an apple or an orange. And, and they'll say, well, therefore you don't get this explanation of why actually the apple rather than the orange. Uh, if it's the same explanatory causes, uh, what is it that differentiates and allows you to actually go for the apple versus the orange? And it's the personal explanation aspect. I And through agent causation, I am a free agent. And while I'm impressed by the same explanatory priors, or reasons for my decision, I'm a prime mover in a new causal chain. And that is perfectly sensible to give a binary rather than a ternary relationship as an explanation. So yeah, there's, there's absolutely no problem here. Skeptics are out to lunch when they demand there are that a contrastive explanation is necessary. No, we, we give binary sufficient explanations all the time. And that's all that my premise is arguing for a sufficient explanation that doesn't mean it has to be a contrastive explanation even if the same explanatory 
factors are involved in explaining why I chose to eat an apple versus an orange, it doesn't matter because there's that additional thing of the agent causation as a prime mover. I chose the apple. Um, that's what I wanted to eat. And that's how we explain things all the time via what Richard Swinburne calls personal explanation. Um, so this is an utter failure as, a, as an argument. So yeah, I think basically we, we've seen that all of the skeptical uh, counter PSR arguments are total failures. The PSR denying skeptic cannot prove on a balance of probabilities that any single one of them um, disqualifies the, ex the general existence or truth of the principle of sufficient reason as we have defined it. Um, secondly, on the positive evidence side for the truth of the principle of sufficient reason in general, we have seen through the properly basic belief in self-evidence that it's 100% certain, in my estimation, you might have different numbers, uh, but we've seen that the PSR, we can know the PSR exists in that way. Um, there's also the God-remnant argument that may apply to some of you skeptics, uh, the probability argument, which is successful, but uh, I didn't include because I didn't totally understand it. Um, there's no widespread violations of the PSR that we observe in the world around us. Bada boom, bada bing, destroying PSR denying skeptics and proving that it's true in general. Uh, and then finally, we gave our uh, the last positive evidence, the, the nature of modality argument, which again, very strong. It shows there's a logical contradiction in claiming the PSR is false, um, in, in claiming that it's even possible for the PSR to be false. Therefore, the PSR is a necessary truth. Wow. Plugging those various factors into Bayes' theorem, so again, no, no negative evidence has had over 50% proven level based on my figures, uh, so they're excluded from the calculation. If some of you assigned one or more of those evident negative evidences a value of 50.01% or higher, then you will want to plug those into Bayes' theorem as well to get the cumulative case probability overall. Um, but yeah, for me, there's just those uh, three factors, the nature of modality, the uh, properly based belief slash sufficient evidence, and uh, the no widespread violations uh, of the PSR argument that went into my factor. And obviously, since the properly based belief or self-evidence factor proved uh, for me that I'm 100% warranted, it's absolutely certain that the principle of sufficient reason, as I have defined it in premise two, is in fact true, uh, it doesn't matter what the other factors are, I'm at 100%. Um, it's always going to be 100%. Even if on the negative side I had 99.99%, it would the calculation would still come out 100% that premise, that aspect one of premise two, the truth, the general truth of the PSR is true. But we're not done now. So great, I, I've established that uh, aspect one is true, that the principle of sufficient reason generally tr is true and applies to quote-unquote existing things. But what about aspect two? Do does this general PSR apply in the case of the universe in particular? Um, and on this front, so in the first place, the main evidence I gave is the, the fact that there's a properly basic belief or self-evidence. And in that respect, I, I assigned a 99% degree of warrant um, to saying that, yes, the PSR is not only generally true, I'm absolutely certain of that, but it also applies in the case of the particular, in the particular case of the existing universe. Um, 
On the negative, negative side, the only one that was possibly relevant to aspect two was the quantum physics argument against it. Um, but as we saw there, again, quant this is actually false because quantum physics do have sufficient explanations. They're just statistical explanations. They're not logically entailing explanations. That doesn't matter. It's, they still have sufficient explanations, explanations that are sufficient to explain the explanum, explanandum or give a reason for their existence, the thing that exists. So, so yeah. Um, Basically, we're 99% proven um, that that the PSR does in fact apply to the case of the universe. And this is the default position, given that it's generally true and that the universe is an existing thing. The burden of proof shifts from me to the skeptic to prove that there's not, that there's a not a justification, that there is a justification for exempting or accepting this general PSR principle. If they don't, they're committing the taxicab fallacy, uh, because you know taxicab fallacy is basically where you just you use the PSR for as long as you want until you arrive at your desired location. Then, whoops, we get to the universe. That implies God. Oh yikes! I'm an atheist and skeptic, and I'm so biased. I don't want to admit that there's a God, so I'm going to jump out and abandon the PSR at the level of the universe. So that way, I don't have to worry about explaining that. Uh, sorry, skeptics. That's a logical fallacy called the taxicab logical fallacy. And remember, skeptics and atheists apply this to Christians. Um, we're going to be covering the taxicab fallacy when it comes to, okay, if you can prove there's a first cause or ultimate explanation, what caused or explained that? What, uh, what caused God? Um, so skeptics, obviously, atheists recognize that the taxicab fallacy is something you can't do. You can't just arbitrarily... Uh, get off and stop using the PSR when it becomes inconvenient for you. Um, and based on this fact and the fact that the PSR is always uh, true inductively and that sort of thing, it, it's never been observed to be false. So even if you want to arrive at that inductively through some sort of inductive argument, the burden of proof is clearly on the PSR denying skeptic to prove that the universe is a justified exemption or exception. So yeah, what, what can the a skeptic do to prove that actually no it, it doesn't apply in the case of the universe we're justified in saying that is an exception or an exemption and uh, we gave the quantum mechanics argument that fails because they do actually they do actually um, quantum phenomena does qualify from the PSR oh uh, and sorry just before I get into the the reasons for the for a claim to justification with the taxicab fallacy and the assumption of innocence until proven guilty once the general principle has been established and that sort of thing um, outside of a properly based belief, Richard Taylor, and I'm going to provide a, a source, his article where he, he argues this for you guys in the sources, but he basically uses the example of a translucent ball. Uh, let's say you come across that during a hike in the woods and you, and you say, well, what explains uh, why this ball is sitting here? Um, and then, well, you say, I don't know, but it obviously has an explanation. Well, simply increasing the size of the ball doesn't mean, doesn't, if it's to the size of a house, well, still requires an explanation. It didn't, it didn't just pop into existence inexplicably. That's absurd. You're an, a fool if you think that's true. Well, what if we increase that translucent ball to the size of a planet? Same thing. You're a fool if you say it just exists inexplicably. What if we increase the size to be... Uh, the same size as the universe. You're an ignorant fool if you say that this has no explanation of its existence. So 
skeptics might try to say, well, based it's something to do with the size of the universe. No, it's the principle of sufficient reason applies to existing things, irrespective of its size. So you can't escape escape it just because oh the universe is so big for me to think of or conceive of. So maybe somehow that that doesn't have a, an explanation. No, that. That's not the way logic works. Um, that's, that's, again, committing the taxicab fallacy and pointing to an irrelevant factor, namely the size of the quote-unquote existing thing to try and avoid uh, the application of the PSR. You're not allowed to do that. Another thing that atheists or skeptics um, have tried to do here to try and establish that, well, in the case of the universe, there is a justified exemption or exception uh, to the uh, principle of sufficient reason to it. Uh, comes from a couple skeptics, uh, Crispin Wright and Bob Hale. Now, make mention here, they fully admit there is a general principle of sufficient reason, and that is the proven default, the epistemic default. Um, you have to, therefore, come up with a rationally justified exemption or exception to that general principle in the case of the universe, and they think they have. Um, because their reason is, well, look, they, they just assert and assume, as per typical skeptic skeptical strategy I find a lot of times, at least with lay skeptics and that, but they'll just assert and assume, well, any physical state of affairs or th any physical thing like the universe requires a causally prior physical state of affairs or thing to cause it. Um, and that physical thing before, that prior physical thing has to exist before the physical explanandum, i.e. the universe, existed. Um, okay, uh, well, where does the skeptic go wrong here? Um, basically, they're assuming that, well, look, um, since the universe represents all of physical reality, it's all of space-time and its physical contents, that means there is actually a state of nothingness prior to the existence of the universe or causally prior to the um, to the f physical universe coming into existence. Um, and since nothing can't stand in causally or explanatorily prior relations with anything, therefore the universe is the exception is an exception to the principle of sufficient reason. It, it doesn't have an explanation because it can't. Um, so where's the flaw here? And basically it, it's quite obvious. These atheists are assuming, and begging the question in favor of atheism. They're just assuming that the only things that can cause physical things are physical things. Um, and since there weren't any physical things prior to, causally prior to the Big Bang or to the existence of the universe, haha, I guess it doesn't have an explanation. But that's assuming physicalism or materialism. You're not allowed to do that. Um, you can't just deny the equal possibility or probability of there being a non-physical state of affairs or thing, namely God, perhaps, that caused the universe to come into existence. You're not allowed to just deny that in and beg the question in favor of atheism. The reason for this is because we have what's called a principle of indifference. And this is something that I've gone back and forth with Val on in the context of supernatural miracles or those kinds of explanations where skeptics will just sort of assume, assert and assume, only certain kinds of explanations are true. If, if you remember, I said the default prior probability in a Bayesian sense is 50% for any hypothesis. So you, if you hear hoofprints coming down the thing, it could be a horse, could be a zebra, or it could be a unicorn. 
Val would say, no, you, you have to rule out the unicorn. And I was saying, well, no, not a priori right away um, because we have a principle of indifference. And that basically states that, look, you have to treat every single, um, it, it's basically a rule for assigning epistemic probabilities. It, it states that in the absence of any relevant evidence, so uh, background evidence in this case, agents should distribute distribute their credence or degrees of belief equally amongst all the possible outcomes under consideration. Um, and in a Bayesian sense, that, that equals the 50% mark. Or in, in other, you know, in Andrew's sense, you could say, well, 0% zero, 0 proven for all of the various options. But where Val will come in is if you have a reason to suppose through background evidence or through direct a posteriori evidence to rule out certain options, well then, yeah, you have a justification for ruling out certain options compared to others. Um, but this is what I was getting at, this principle of indifference. And the uh, a non-physical cause, given the principle of indifference and no proven reasons to rule out non-physical causes, causing physical causes uh, to or explaining physical causes, you don't have the right to just assert and assume that they can't explain it. Um, I'm sorry, you you have to prove that as the skeptic here, and you can't. So that's why this argument fails. Um, however, there, there is a second aspect here that's not covered by Chris, uh, Bob Hale and, and uh, Crispin Wright. And that comes down to the, okay, well, sure, I'll, I'll give you that it's equally probable that a non-physical cause could explain a physical effect like the universe, existence of the universe. But remember, it's got to be causally prior in that case. And remember what the universe is. It is the origin of space and time and all its contents, as I've defined it. Ah, so causes, the principle of sufficient reason is predicated upon time. Something has to be temporally or chronologically prior to the existence of, its, of the effect in order to be said to explain or cause it. Um, so there's this skeptical objection that the cause and effect relationship is predicated upon there being not just a, a an explanatory priority, explanatory or causally or causal priority is identical to a temporal or chronological priority, uh, right? Obviously, if you cause something to exist um, or truly to begin to exist, um, as we'll argue in the case of the universe, then that requires something to exist before that to cause it in within time. Now, how would we respond to this uh, objection here? So the, that creates a justified exception or exemption to the universe, right? If there's no time, then there's no cause or cause for that because nothing was chronologically prior uh, to the start of the universe. It's like Stephen Hawking in his book, The Grand Design, says it's like asking what is south of the South Pole. It's just logically absurd, doesn't make sense. So great, that's a justified exemption to the principle of sufficient reason, right? Uh, in the case of the universe. Uh, well, no, skeptics, no, sorry. So in the first place, w with the Leibnizian cosmological argument, I'm allowed to just say, well, actually, guess what? No, there was a chronological prior point in time. Time and space and time are eternal. Uh, this, this argument doesn't assume there were, that the universe began to exist like the Kalam cosmological ar argument does. Time is eternal. Or I could say that there was 
Uh, or even if you accept the Big Bang, I could say like Hugh Ross. I could say, oh, well, there's a second dimension of time. There's hyper time. Um, or as Hugh Ross goes on further, there's hyper hyper time. Uh, that's the dimension of time God exists in. So there is an eternal temporal procession or, or chronological procession uh, of events, of cause and effects over the course of eternity. Um, therefore, totally bypassing this skeptical objection to the case of the universe. However, I actually don't buy that. I actually do think that time began to exist, as we'll find out in the Kalam cosmological argument uh, next uh, in our next episode in this series. So, okay, this, this objection would then obtain, right? Wrong. Um, the reason is because, no, it's, it's just illogical and false, um, scientifically proven to be false, actually, that something needs to be temporally or chronologically prior to an effect uh, in order to be said to be causally or explanatorily prior to an effect. That's wrong. And the best example, one of the best examples that people have is let's, let's picture a big ball sitting on a cushion and the cushion um, gets uh, dense and it gets, uh, what's, why can't I think of the word? It gets uh, depressions in it because of the weight of the ball, the mass of the ball sitting on it. Further, we could suppose that the ball was sitting on that cushion, thereby causing, explanatorily or causally prior, to the uh, uh, to the depression in the pillow. Right, the depression in the pillow doesn't cause the ball uh, to the mass of the ball there. So, we can imagine that that ball was sitting on the cushion for eternity. Therefore, there was no chronological priority of the ball falling onto the cushion, causing the depression to occur. Um, they just existed for all of eternity, uh, eternity past, like that. Sci it's called simultaneous causation, and science has proven it. Albert Einstein has gotten into this, and yeah, th this is a valid concept. Um, simultaneous causation uh, can allow there to be an explanatorily prior uh, cause for a given effect, like the existence of the universe, but does not necessitate a chronological or temporal priority of the cause uh, in relation to the effect. Um, obviously that, that's controversial. Someone like Skydive Phil, for example, and when he wrote the Still Unbelievable chapter, I remember the comments, he, he questioned that simultaneous uh, causation is true. Um, I don't, I, I've looked into it and it's, it's scientifically proven to be true and is obvious the case as in the case of the example that I gave. It, it's, it, is an equally po equal possibility, and skeptics have failed to meet their burden of proof to prove that it's probably true that something like sim simultaneous causation is false. And that's what they need to do to overcome aspect two and say that the universe is a justified exemption or exception. And I'll actually provide um, a couple of interesting articles, scholarly level articles in the sources, uh, between William Lane Craig and um, Dr. Gronbaum. Basically, William Lane Craig argues for this simultaneous causation that uh, causal priority is not the same as chronological priority. Um, they're not identical in order for something to be caused. Um, and then Gronbaum, uh, I'll give his article responding to that, saying, well, that's nonsense. Uh, and then William Lane Craig follows up with that, uh, completely destroying the atheist uh, philosopher there um, with his final response. So you get to see sort of an interesting back and forth between two experts, uh, philosophers, uh, going back and forth on this specific issue there. Um, okay, so the 
final attempt of the uh, skeptic here could be an objection that uh, B.D. Rundle gives. And he says, uh, well, look, I admit that, uh, that the universe is contingent. And I admit that it, there must, it must go back to some, it can't just exist totally inexplicably. There must be some reason for it. And it exists, and here's his thing. He'll say that necessarily every uh, something exists out of logical necessity, but what that something is is totally inexplicable. So he denies the PSR. We, we can't ask, we can ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And that is because, well, necessarily something has to exist, um, but as to what that something is, it doesn't matter. It could be anything. It could be a ball. It could be a universe. It could be Dale Glover or a Boltzmann brain. As long as some, necessarily something has to exist. But what that something is, there's no answer. That's just inexplicable. The principle of sufficient reason doesn't explain why we have the particular something, i.e. the universe, that we have as opposed to rather than uh, another something. So it's, it's kind of akin to, look, every object necessarily has a shape. But nevertheless, it's totally contingent or inexplicable. No particular shape, um, there's no uh, particular shape that the object necessarily has. So there's nothing, there's nothing, uh, there are no things that exist, that necessarily exist, but necessarily there is something that exists, if that makes sense. So that's, that's the objection by B.D. Rundle and, and others who've, uh, given this, I think Matt Dillahunty raises this in, in one of the sources. I'll give his short 35-minute video about his thoughts on the contingency argument here, including the version that we're using. Um, so the rebuttal basically to this is twofold. Um, so this is just total abs logical absurdity and nonsense on the part of atheists. Um, number one, Alexander Proust has proven, logically proven, that it's not true. It's absurd to say that the conjunction of claims about the non-existence of various things logically entails that something like that something exists so if you think of the maximal maximally possible great uh, logically possible worlds that that maximal set of propositions if we have a bunch of uh, a horse doesn't exist mountains don't exist and lakes don't exist and david johnson doesn't exist and stars don't exist and we give a maximal conjunction of all the things that don't exist, that doesn't logically entail that all of a sudden a unicorn does exist or necessarily must exist or or that a dragon exists contingently. Um, sorry, not necessarily exists. That, they, that a unicorn contingently exists or that a dragon contingently exists in that logically possible world. Uh, this is just absurd uh, to think. So... This argument is an utter failure, and it fails based on that alone. But secondly, we have another devastating critique to this nonsense, atheistic nonsense, because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, without a metaphysically or logically necessary being to cause the contingent beings to to exist in their respective possible worlds, there just is no sufficient reason or explanation as to why it's necessary that one contingent being or another inhabit uh, or obtains in any possible worlds at all. You know, cer certainly there's no logical contradiction, explicit or implicit, um, 
in it, about a world just completely devoid of contingent beings. Uh, certainly Christians conceive of that as the God alone. Uh, my skeptic, skeptical co-host David Johnson, he, he said, well, it's possible God couldn't have created anything. It, it's, there's no contingent beings. That's logically possible. Just God necessarily existing on his own. So certainly we can conceive of possible worlds where there are no contingent things. There's no logical contradiction, either explicit or implicit, in that possibility. So it's just ad hoc on the part of these atheists and skeptics, um, you know, being so desperate, uh, given the vast infinity of broadly logical possible worlds, um, to just say, well, contingent beings necessarily exist. One contingent being or another necessarily exists in each of the logically possible worlds inexplicably without any explanation as to why. Um, this is just ad hoc and immensely improbable. It, it, it strains the, the bounds of credulity for reasonable people. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that's, that's it. Um, so based on that, yeah, as I said, I, based on the properly basic belief in self-evidence, the lack of skeptical justifications for exempting or accepting the, uh, principle of sufficient reason to the existing universe as an existing thing uh, and the fact that we can't commit the logical taxicab fallacy and just abandon the PSR whenever it's convenient to us well we know that the universe is an existing thing we proved that in premise one the PSR generally applies to all existing things and cannot be abandoned without justification the skeptic and atheist has totally failed to provide justification in the particular case of the universe uh, the justification for an exemption or an exception in the particular case of the universe. Therefore, premise number two is 100% generally true times 99% proven true in the case of the uni in the case of the universe itself, uh, the universe's existence. Therefore, premise number two has been 99% warranted as being true uh, in terms of my normative probability values. Again, you'll have your own probability values, but it should be in the same ballpark. I, if you don't have something in the ballpark between 95 and 100%, you're unreasonable. There's something wrong with you. You are outside the reasonableness range um, in terms of all these persuasive arguments. The PSR is that strong that it is undeniably true. And if you do deny it's true, then, there, then you are an unreasonable person. You are outside of what I call the reasonableness range. But... I think that there can be a range. Maybe you're 96%, I'm 99%, maybe somebody else is 100%, maybe someone else is 97 um, I would define the reasonableness range as being 95.01%, beyond reasonable doubt, uh, to 100%. So, yeah, if you're outside of that, then maybe take a serious look at yourself and see if you're not, if you're being open-minded or, or closed-minded or something, or you're not understanding uh, the nature of reality or the arguments that I presented here um, because this this is truly strong it is truly the truth of this premise is, is proven beyond a reasonable doubt uh, just before we get into premise three just wanted to give a quick addendum, uh, addendum here about premise two um, so with aspect number two so applying the principle of sufficient reason in particular to the case of the universe there, there is no justified exemption or exception um, I rely. I said it was not. I'm 99% warranted of this premise based on a properly based belief, or it's self-evident that it does apply to the universe, in particular. Um, but there are also a couple other 
uh, positive evidences or arguments uh, based on how we argue for the PSR in general that can be applied to aspect two. And I, I should mention those, uh, even though I avoided them as a worst case scenario to help out the, the skeptic or the atheist avoiding the Leibnizian cosmological argument, uh, for the sake of Christians or others in the audience, you should know that there are other ways to establish aspect two, that the PSR in general does apply to the universe. So the, the, other, the second way, besides a property basic belief or self-evidence in that regard, uh, is through the no violations, uh, widespread violations of the PSR. You can create an inductive argument, perhaps, and, and reason, well, look, the PSR applies in general to existing things. The universe is an existing thing. In the absence of any justifications for an exemption or exception provided by the atheist uh, as to why the universe, it shouldn't apply in the case of the universe, um, well, the universe is an existing thing like everything else, and inductively, therefore, since I see no violations and everything I know of, uh, the PSR applies to, every existing thing uh, that I know of, the, the uh, PSR applies to, therefore, it applies to the universe. And that's an inductive argument that you could use that's pretty strong. Um, again, I, I think I gave that 99.99%. Uh, you could you know, inductively assign your own probability for establishing aspect number two in general. And the second one, this is really strong, um, and I, I, it'll probably bump me up to 99.99% or more, but it's, it's basically, remember that nature of modality argument? Um, I realize we can apply this to prove aspect number two as well, because think of it, um, when that argument, uh, I assigned a 95% to 100% on that, proven, but if it proves that there's a logical contradiction uh, that comes from supposing it's logically possible that the universe could exist without an explanation, well, that's logically impossible. So the logically equivalent is that, well, it's logically possible for the universe to exist with the cause. Not only that, it's also necessary because the, the opposite, the universe coming to existence without a cause, is logically contradictory. It, it's, it reduces to absurdity. Therefore, it's necessarily true that the universe in particular has a, uh, uh, the principle of sufficient reason applies in the case of the universe. In order for this argument to, to work in terms of aspect two, you have to say, well, how confident are you that it's even logically possible? Uh, just logically possible that the universe came into existence with a cause. And again, I would, again, that's through our modal evaluating faculties and a properly basic belief through them. It's, it's obviously logically possible. It, come on, skeptics and atheists. You have to admit that it's possible that the universe came into existence with a cause. As a worst case scenario, I might give a 5% standard deviation to help out the atheist at most to, to say maybe, maybe it's, if you want to deny this argument, you have to say that it's logically impossible. You have to argue that it's impossible for the universe in particular uh, to come into existence with a cause. And I don't think you can do that. I mean, especially since we've seen that all the attempts of atheists in the negative evidences to try and prove that the universe constitutes a justified exemption or exception, then yeah, it's obviously logically possible uh, that the universe came into existence with a cause. So, so yeah, this really puts the skeptic into a bind. Unless they can prove that it's impossible 
that it's necessarily true that the universe comes into existence without an explanation or a cause, um, then this argument can be modified and actually proves through substituting the, exist, uh, the universe for the contingent thing coming in, in the argument, it proves that it's necessarily true that the universe has an explanation, including in the actual universe that we live in. So, yeah, these are a couple different powerful ways you can also establish aspect two, in addition to just using a properly basic belief or self-evidence to, to get the 99%. So in actuality, yeah, covering these, I'll, I'll be well above 99.99. Possibly you might even assign it 100% based on one of these two ways of reasoning um so yeah i uh, just wanted to give those those couple uh added arguments to establish aspect two before we get into uh premise number three um so yeah all right uh that's it for premise two next time in part five we will get into the uh the most controversial and the uh most important premise of our three premise argument uh namely proving that god or god one the the God one hypothesis is true um, and is the ultimate explanation for the existence of our contingent universe. Until then, have a, have a great week. Okay, bye-bye.